Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up, Nets world? We're back here on the Believe in Nets podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. As always, I'm your host, Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. Breaking news earlier this Monday morning, Jock Vaughn is out as head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. One season after he was hired as interim head coach, replacing Steve Nash, and then about a week after that was hired as permanent head coach, signed a contract extension to the 2026-27 season. Vaughn is out, and the Nets are expected, or at least have begun negotiations, with assistant coach Kevin Ollie to take over as interim head coach for the rest of this season. Just taped a good interview with Brian Lewis of the New York Post. We talked about reactions to the firing, you know what this means for Sean Marks' future, what this means for the team's future, and how they're going to go about the rest of the season and the offseason, potential replacements, some of what went into the decision, all that. Going to get to that shortly. Just wanted to touch on this news and give a brief summary of what has gone down leading up to this before getting to the interview with Brian. Obviously, the Nets started out 13-10 and 10 this season and since then have struggled in a major way. They're 8-23 and 23 over their last 31 games. That has dropped them to 11th place in the Eastern Conference. They've been near the bottom of the league in offense and defense during that span, and that all obviously bubbled up to a 50-point loss on Wednesday to the Boston Celtics at TD Garden, after which... Mikhail Bridges had some very interesting comments about the coaching and pretty much openly called out the coaching, not something that we've often, if ever, seen from Mikhail Bridges. So it was very noteworthy, and I did, I pretty much dedicated my whole last podcast to the question of, is there a disconnect between Mikhail Bridges and Jacques Vaughn? And I talked about how the quotes were a very, very bad look, how they were concerning, how they could lead to things, and how they signaled that the head coach and the top player on the team were not on the same page. The line that stood out the most from Bridges was part of, you know, other quotes and there was some context, but basically said, we've got to know what we're doing. We've got to come out as a team, as coaches, and figure out a game plan, end quote. And when you hear something like that from Mikhail Bridges, it's eye-opening. And it signaled the head coach and the top player not being on the same page, something I had just talked about with Brian Lewis on my trade deadline reaction pod, the importance of being in lockstep from a management and a coaching perspective with your top player. The Nets lose by 50, and obviously these comments from Bridges were troubling. And there's some other things that played into this. Shams Tarania reported shortly after the announcement of the decision that multiple players, including Spencer Dimwitty, who's obviously now in the Los Angeles Lakers, and Bridges said that they were already pretty vocal behind the scenes For months now about the offense that Vaughn was running, not having confidence in the offense, saying that it didn't have enough structure. They said that Vaughn came into the year obviously saying that they were going to run a, you know, a free-flowing offense. The team, you know, wanting to have a lot of guys have equal opportunity. And some of the guys, you know, within that Nets locker room, Bridges and Dinwiddie being the guys that Trani had named, said that it was important to establish a hierarchy. And that was something that the Nets hadn't done up to this point. And it was something that, you know, They also touched on, um, Tarani also touched on Ben Simmons being given the starting point guard role and kind of handed the keys to the offense earlier in the year. Obviously, you know, six games or seven games into the season, he's out for three months due to a nerve impingement and is surgically repaired back. So issues with that. And then get to this point in the season, and it's something that I've talked about for a while now, the Nets not having a clear pecking order and a clear established identity. Now, while I'll say that, giving Simmons the reins to the offense, given his injury history and its inability to stay on the floor for any kind of an extended period over the last two seasons prior, 
giving him the starting point guard role and leaning into him to the point where Jock said, we don't want to play in the half court. We want to be out in transition. That's what Ben can do for us. And styling the whole offense around him was a major mistake. And I was extremely surprised. I talked about this in the interview with Brian, but right after Simmons got hurt, and this is something I talked about on my last podcast, I wrote an article about how the reality of the situation for the Nets is that they cannot trust Simmons. And when he comes back, they cannot have him playing that big of a feature role in the offense, relying on him that heavily because he's so often in and out of the lineup and the changing styles and what that does to the Nets. So that along with once he even went out, the lack of a pecking order, you know, guys like Spencer Dinwiddie being moved off the ball, Cam Thomas coming in and starting, then being moved to the bench, Mikhail Bridges trying to do more than he can. You know, all of that led to some instability within the Nets team. Now, while Vaughn could have done a better job handling that, in my opinion, it's not easy when you don't have that top player. You don't have that top star. You have a lot of injuries. You have a lot of roster turnover. You have a guy like Mikhail Bridges trying to be your lead option, playing outside your role, his role, or usual accustomed role. And then you have a guy like Cam Thomas, who's a 22-year-old who, you know, is not a lead scoring option on a high level team right now, you know, at this point in his NBA career, could he get there eventually? Sure. But he's not right now when you have that. And that's what you're working with. It can be difficult, obviously to establish a pecking order and a hierarchy, but you know, it was clear after that Boston game that a lot of the players seemed like they had quit and didn't show up to play in that game. Bridges's comments after obviously signaled a disconnect between the coaching and a lot of the players within the locker room and the Nets listen to their top player and they acted swiftly and they move on from Vaughn. And now Sean Marks will be hiring his fourth head coach of his coaching tenure, which is pretty unbelievable for a guy, you know, obviously who's only won one playoff series. So that's naturally going to lead to the conversation of is Sean Marks the right guy to lead this team moving forward? At what point does ownership look to finally make a change, get a fresh set of eyes in there, given the amount of coaching turnover, given the lack of playoff success during Marx's tenure. But that's an interesting conversation because we all know the many sliding doors moments in Marx's Nets tenure. A lot of people would say if James Harden and Kyrie Irving don't get hurt in that 2021 playoffs of the Nets cruise to a championship, then is the Steve Nash hire looked at as a great hire and is Marks getting praise and ownership getting praise. And you look at Marks's history of firings and hirings of head coaches with the Nets. He obviously hired Kenny Atkinson, who was his most extensive head coaching search and then turned out to be the most successful and the best coach of his Nets tenure. Then Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving obviously come in. They had their disagreements with Atkinson, and then he is fired. Steve Nash then hired, who has a prior relationship with Durant and also with Sean Marks, having those two played together with the Phoenix Suns. Kyrie Irving had some comments when that hiring was made. He said, I don't really see us having a head coach. KD could be a head coach. I could be a head coach someday. He said, we don't need someone to come in with their coaching philosophy and change everything we're doing. So obviously there's some level of involvement of catering to the stars there when that head coaching hire was made. Then it doesn't work out. There's a multitude of factors, whether COVID-19 injuries in those playoffs playing into that. Then Durant requests a trade, asks for Nash to be fired. He's not eventually fired at the beginning of the next season. Then there's rumors they're going to hire Ime Adoka. And then Jock Vaughn's brought in. It doesn't work out. He's fired now. All of the things playing into that, there's a lot of different ways to dissect the coaching history of Shaw Marks, how much of it was playing, you know, catering to stars, how much of it should he have drawn a harder line, how much of it was just his own decisions. You know, I broke down all that. I broke down this Jock Vaughn firing, the news of Kevin Ollie, likely replacing Vaughn as interim head coach with Brian Lewis, 
Hope you guys enjoy that interview after the theme music. I'm joined now by Brian Lewis of the New York Post. Brian, we get the news this morning. Obviously, Jock Vaughn out as head coach in Brooklyn. What was your reaction when you saw the news this morning? Were you mildly surprised? Was it expected? Just your reaction. Uh, it was expected, but it, I was mildly surprised only at the timing. Uh, I had been led to believe that they might make a move in the summer or off season. I was mildly surprised that it happened when it did. It was pretty clear. I mean, you know that they don't, the NBA does not like having any news overshadow or come out during the all-star game. And I include skills and rookie game and so forth. Uh, so when you consider how quickly it came out after all that was over, this was clearly the direction they were going in. It's distinctly possible that the 50 point beating that they took in Boston just accelerated the process. Um, and when I say the, the loss, I don't just mean the scoreline, but I mean the reactions to the loss inside the locker room. Yeah. And, you know, it, it kind of felt this way based on how these last, you know, two plus months have gone with the net spiraling kind of down to 11th place that if Vaughn were to stay on through the all-star break, it would have taken just an unbelievable, miraculous close to the season right. to save his job as they kind of are pivoting in to this next era era and want to go after some stars. And you talk about that Boston loss and being surprised about the timing you were there and several responses to your questions garnered what I would call very noteworthy responses. And the most significant of which came from Mikhail Bridges talking about the loss was clearly frustrated. The one line that, you know, stood out, it was in context of some other things, but said, we've got to know what we're doing. We've got to come as a team as coaches and figure out a game plan. And it was interesting because I had just had you on in my last podcast and we had just talked about the importance of the organization being on the same page as their top player and how important that was going to be moving forward. And one of the next games, you've got a pretty, a guy who's one of the more mild mannered players, I'd say, or high level players in the NBA, taking a pretty clear shot at the coaching staff. Just what was your reaction when you heard that quote? And was that something that led you to believe that this change could be accelerated? Well, when I heard him say it, uh, obviously the antenna perks up and my initial thought was this, and unfortunately the way it is, this is the business that Jock was not long for the job. Uh, as, as we discussed, you have to be on the same page with your, and when I say stars, I get it that I say the word star and obviously snark comes out on Twitter questions and that's have stars and whatnot. I, I get Top it. Player. Top player. Whatever way you want to describe him, top player, um, foundational player, however you want to describe him, he's important in there. That's the reality of it. So when he is saying that openly, and then you have other players that have talked privately, some of whom are there still and some are not, it seemed pretty apparent that they were going in this direction. It just turned out to be sooner rather than later. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about several players, you know, coming out and kind of there being, you know, maybe some grievances behind the scenes there. Shams Charania came out and pretty much said that 
Uh, Dimwitty and Mikhail Bridges were the names that he used, but players have been vocal behind the scenes about, you know, the offense that Vaughn was running, it kind of being a free-flowing offense, them kind of having some objectives, wanting to establish a hierarchy and, you know, the importance of that and things along those lines and kind of being unhappy with that. And that's something that I've talked about throughout the season is kind of the lack of a pecking order in Brooklyn and kind of how on each given day, kind of it seems like anybody could have the reins offensively. But, you know, it's, it's a little difficult in that regard because the Nets don't have that top guy, that top scoring option. If you want to say it's Mikhail Bridges, you know, he hasn't been that guy throughout his career. Cam Thomas is 22 years old. And, you know, while he has these great scoring nights, he can also lay some duds like he did in that game in Boston at five points on one for nine shooting, I think. So a little bit of a tough position for Jock Vaughn. But at the same time, after a loss like that, you know, you asked him a question and he kind of points to them not having a lot of experience together, you know, new guys playing together. After that Clippers loss, he had some interesting answers, you know, and could border on the line of making some excuses. Did you think that, you know, his, you know, his messaging after some of those losses and the way that some of these games played out kind of played into, you know, him losing some of that faith within the locker room? Uh, Probably. Uh, what I would say is this. I mean, by and large, he's about as positive as it gets. All right. What I would say is they were different. I don't want to say factions because that's not accurate. But they were different people in the locker room that might have had different complaints for varying reasons. Whether it was playing time and not being in the rotation when they felt they should have been, whether it was the way they were used. Maybe they are playing, but they are marginalized and off the ball and stuck in the corner shooting threes when that is clearly not their game and they're better on the ball. Uh, whether it's guys that might have felt put upon because in their mind they're playing well and they're scoring and they feel like they're getting blamed for losses, even when they're scoring like water. There are a number of, of reasons why his message may not have been connecting late the way it was early. But I, I think in the end, when guys feel one of two things, either you don't have their best interest at heart, which I don't think a lot of NBA players in that locker room felt about Jock. I think for the most part, the guys thought he was a good guy, right? Or secondly, when you don't have a plan that puts them in the best position to succeed, where unfortunately I feel like a number of guys got to the point they felt that way about Jock. That's a problem to overcome either of those things. If you have both of them, then you... uh, you're gone. You might as well just walk in and say, just fire me. But when you get either of those things, it begins to be a problem. And I think Jacques fell into the latter category. Yeah. And, you know, some of what earlier in the season, when we heard some of the, you know, talk about Ben Simmons coming in and being the point guard for this offense, him kind of, you know, having the reins. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't use the word reluctant, but Jacques, clearly had some trepidation about doing that given Ben's injury history and some things along those lines. And then, you know, Ben comes in, he is the point guard, he looks promising and then he gets hurt. 
and he's out for such an extended period. And now he's back and, you know, he misses one game and then he's out for the back-to-backs. So and a lot of those, you know, Mikhail Bridges answers were talking about having, you know, a plan for when Ben is in the lineup versus when Ben isn't in the lineup. So when you talk about guys having grievances about the hierarchy and pecking order, and clearly there's other things that play into that, it's not – it's not an easy thing to do when you have a guy like Ben who's in and out of the lineup. Then you have guys who like Bridges who are naturally better set up by, you know, other high usage guys. And that other guy is a guy like Cam Thomas who's only 22 years old, but the decision to give Simmons the reins for lack of a better term earlier this season was, was an interesting one to say the least given his injury history. And I'm going to get to some things on Sean Marks, but earlier this season, when you heard that and you, it kind of seemed, you know, Jock saying, we don't want to play in the half court. We want to be out in transition. Bring brings that for us. All the things that they want to do and kind of styling this offense. Maybe you can argue they don't have as much of another choice because of the lack of talent on the roster. But how surprising was that to you? Because I know to me, it seemed like almost a recipe for disaster, which is what it kind of turned out to be. How surprising was it in training camp when he was talking about yeah. that? Mm-hmm. I think it's well, – I don't know that it's surprising when you consider – uh, his resume and salary, right? Simmons's resume and salary. Simmons's resume and salary. I think it's more dangerous than surprising. Yeah. When you are saying, well, we are putting all our eggs in a basket that's labeled Ben Simmons. That's dangerous. I think it may have been surprising to Spencer Dinwiddie, um, because I think he thought, okay, I I have a background. I, I have a resume. I started last year. I take care of my body. I came in in great shape, and I, I'm playing well in camp. So I think it was surprising to him to find out, oh, Ben's going to be our starting point guard. I think that left him a little surprised. Um I think he probably thought, I'm the starter. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, I, I I also should be in position to get some sort of contract done. Uh, as it turns out, he got neither. Um, I mean, he became the starter by default because, as we have seen, Ben had health issues. But, I mean, coming out of camp, he was not the starter. So... Am I surprised that they put all their eggs in that basket? I I can't say I'm stunned just because when you looked at the roster and you looked at the salary cap and you looked at the potential of what Ben could be, even if he's not 100%, even if he's 80%, the potential is that he makes you better. And I I think the facts have borne that out. I mean, they're it's small sample size, but 500 with Ben starting and what 15 and 27 or some such when he's not. Mm -hmm. So I think the facts have borne out. Yes, they are better when Ben is playing and starting and the ball is in his hands. The problem is you have no clue what you're doing when he's not starting. That's the problem. Or when you're in the half court offense, because yes, or right. Or even when he is starting and it's, it's a, you don't, you can't run a hundred times a game. Yeah, it's it's a whole. It'd be nice, but you can't do it. It's a whole nother conversation that I don't want to get too deep into. But from my perspective, I was I was a little shocked given the given his injury history and 
degree to which the styles vary when he's on the floor versus when he's not on the floor. And based off of some of Mikhail Bridges' comments, you know, I was not expecting, but I think it could have been a wise move. It could still could be, depending on who the replacement is, out of the break, you know, to deploy him in a more limited fashion and try to gain that more of a hierarchy and pecking order and consistency and kind of hedge your bets with how often he's injured. But a conversation for another day that we'll have closer, you know, once the Nets get back into action. But naturally, a lot of the talk after a move like this is going to be about Sean Marks hiring his fourth head coach now. You know, should he be allowed to make that hire? You know, kind of a lot of relitigating the past and what went on with a lot of those hirings and firings. What does this move say about his job security and just the direction that the team is going and where their priorities lie with the end of this season? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how much you want to read tea leaves. I mean, the statement came not from Joe Sy, the owner, but from Sean Marks. Uh, so you could look and try to read into that. But four coaches is a lot of coaches. That is for any G. That's a lot of coaches without success we're not talking about say i don't know the athletic director at university of houston just hiring coaches because they're getting plucked by some power five team because they're having good seasons and you're replacing them that's not what this is this would be four coaches with one playoff series win that probably would be something that would be, I, I don't want to say surprising, but certainly noteworthy and rare. Um, but, you know, Joe Sy and Sean Marks have been described as being in lockstep. Um, so I, you know, you have to presume that Sean is here until you find out otherwise. But I would say, that's a lot of coaches to go through. And I would say Sean has done a great job at many aspects of the job. When you look at most of the trades, they have been good. When you look at their creativity with the salary cap and how they have massaged the cap and how they have both created and used trade exceptions, it's been exceptional, no pun intended. But in terms of picking the coaches, that is something where he may have been lacking. And that's a huge part of the job. One of the, in my mind, the two biggest things is picking your coaches and making sure you are on the same page with your stars. Mm -hmm. And we can critique all day the Sean Marks regime in those two areas. And I don't want to get in too much into relitigating, you know, the past hirings well, and firings and everything that's happened. But you are the, you know, longest tenured reporter on the Nets beat. So you've seen it all. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've been through it all, you know, especially, you know, with this Marx regime. And you saw, you know, the hiring of Atkinson, the firing of Atkinson, the hiring of Nash, the firing of Nash and all of that, you know, there's there's more than that goes into that, obviously, than just Marx's decision as, you know, with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant being here. So the the interesting aspect of it when it, when I you know dissect his tenure and what's happened is 
you know, how much of those hirings and firings, you know, were catering to stars versus his own? You know, I'm not asking you to relitigate all of it, but do you have any insight remembering when those moves were made? You know, was that more, you know, him wanting to, you know, see those coaches in there, like a guy like Nash, or was that, you know, wanting to have Kyrie and Katie looped into the conversation and them playing a large role? Because, you know, as yeah. we've seen with Kyrie and KD, big personalities who needed to be catered to. So how do you how does that factor into, you know, Marx's decision making in the past and how he should be viewed moving forward, would you say? Well, I think yes. I think catering to the stars was a huge part of why Kenny is in San Francisco, or at least not yeah. here. Um he had Kyrie. There were times when they did not see eye to eye. Uh, if you've met Kenny, Kenny's going to voice his opinions. Um, and Kyrie, as you know, is very strong-willed. Um, I don't know that Kevin... I, I Honestly, I could not sit here and tell you that Kevin Durant wanted Kenny Atkinson gone. I do not know that. So I will not... I'm not going to go there. But I would say, if he wanted him to stay, he'd be staying. Yeah. Right. That much we know. So, yes, I think catering to the stars or at least one star wanting him gone and the other being ambivalent about it. That's why he's gone. And by the way, that was the last extensive coaching search they've had Yeah, was to hire Kenny. And I think Kenny was the most successful of the lot. When you look at what do you have and what do you do with what you have? Mm -hmm. I would say Kenny was the best. Um, now Steve Nash, yes, a lot was made of Steve Nash being brought in, um, because of his pre-existing relationship with Kevin Durant, but really the pre-existing relationship was with Sean Marks. Mm. Uh, Sean had repeatedly tried to get Steve Nash into the organization and it kept offering him jobs and Steve Nash kept saying no. And the job offers just kept getting better and better and better until, you know, I mean, like, like Vito Corleone, he just he made him an offer he could not refuse. You have a chance to coach Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. Of course, he's going to say yes to that. Mm -hmm. um, now, Jacques Vaughn, that's a slightly different scenario. Um, once Kevin Durant wanted Steve Nash gone, then Jacques is your interim for a second time, did a fine job. Um and then ended up, I guess, maybe within, what, seven or eight days is named head coach? Yeah. And then he gets the contract extension, I think, right. last, this time last year through 2026-27, which was, right. I don't know if surprising, but an interesting decision. I would say it, was surprised. it surprised me. Yeah. I mean, I didn't see it coming. Mm -hmm. At least not at that point. I did not see that coming. Yeah. And, you know, also, there's the Ime Odoka factor into all this because when – you know, when Steve Nash was fired, the reporting from Shams Tarania was that the Nets had every intention of hiring Ime Udoka as head coach. And then obviously Udoka had his own you know, issues with the Celtics that led to his dismissal there. The Nets were wrapped up in a PR shitstorm surrounding Kyrie Irving at that time for his post to the anti-Semitic film. And they end up pivoting away from that 
and going in the direction of Jock Vaughn. Just what do you remember? And do you have any insight to, you know, that kind of 180 that was done? Because all indications were pointing to Udoka being the head coach of the Nets. And then it's Vaughn, and then he's in Houston. Well, uh, yeah, what I would say is this. Listen, I think think Ime Udoka is a very fine coach. Now, it's not like Houston is running fourth in the West, but he's good. And I would say that he's somebody that Kevin Durant was very interested in. I would also say that there were a number of ladies, not one, not two, but a number of them that worked for the Nets and in the Nets organization, but also for BSE Global, their Mm. parent company, that had very strong feelings about Ime Udoka being hired. Now, (laughs) it wasn't one and it wasn't two. It was several. And I'm not, I want to be very clear. I am not saying that the opinions and feelings of the workers uh, that might be uh, lesser paid or or, uh, entry-level positions mean less, but I'm specifically saying these were very high-ranking individuals Mm -hmm. that felt strongly about it that were in a position to make their voice heard directly to ownership. You have to question, okay, Kevin Durant wants this. All of these women are saying they don't want this. Is this a hill that you're willing to die on? You're going to really pick this hill to die on. And it's also unclear exactly what the league's position would have been, because you have to remember the Nets would have been interested before Houston was interested. Yeah. There I mean, your rumblings, rumblings that the league had their feelings yes. in addition right. to what you're saying about the Nets women, but go on. Right. So when the league is, well, I, I'm also saying, you know, if you say that EMA was radioactive, you know, radioactivity has a shelf life, right? Yep. Has a half life. So I'm saying he would have been even more radioactive when it would have been time for the Nets to be hiring than he was when Houston has to make this hire, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to consider, okay, not only what kind of uproar am I going to get within my organization, but also what's going to be the reaction from the league? Does the league even want to have this guy run out of this job and immediately just, you know, take a one-hour flight and take another job running a, a contender <laughs> with all these stars. That You have to question, what would the league do here? So this isn't to say that Ime Odoka isn't good, and it's not even to say that Ime Odoka might not have squeezed out more from this team than Jock did. It's just having to understand, well, it's complicated, and there are a lot of moving parts here that you have to juggle before you can just look at it and say, well, he's better, so therefore he should be the higher. Because it's not that simple. And now with Vaughn out the door, uh, Sham Sharania and Adrian Wojnarowski, and also like you and I had this inkling when this move was made, a reporting that Kevin Ali is in discussions to become the interim head coach. And 
you know, Ali's guy won a national title at UConn, you know, had a very good rhetoric, like 130 and 79 or something along those lines during six seasons there. Spent the last two years coaching overtime elite, which is like a 16 to 20 year old league that some of the best players and prospects in the country are a part of. And has come to the Nets and, you know, a guy with not really any NBA coaching experience made a pretty quick impression on the players, it seemed like. So just impressions of Kevin and that move with the signs pointing to him replacing Jock Vaughn as interim head coach. Well, uh, you're right. He's a guy that, one, I would say organizationally, they'd like for a while. Yeah. Um, even before they also and was also in very serious consideration with the Detroit Pistons to be their potential head coach before Monty Williams got the job. And I know a lot of Pistons fans who wanted Kevin Ollie to be their head coach there. So, but go on. Yeah. So, I mean, he's a guy that organizationally they've liked. Clearly, the players, as we discussed off camera, have you know responded to him in a positive way. Um. So, yes, you look back, you know, after the Charlotte game and you look and Jacques lets him talk before Orlando and they respond there. Uh, He is the logical choice. And I'm not going to disrespect any of the other assistant coaches. I thought Will Weaver would have been fine choice. I mean, he's got professional experience. I mean, outside the G League, but I'm saying even Australia, Paris, et cetera. So, I mean, he's he's a professional. He would have been a fine choice too, or would be a fine choice since this is not a done deal. Um, I think Kevin Ollie would be a fine interim for the rest of the year. I think, again, you have to see what he does over the course of 28 games. I think it would be malfeasance to just assume, well, if you do a decent job over these 28 games, we're not looking under every rock <laughs> to have an exhaustive coaching search because they did that before. Mm-hmm. I think it would be necessary to have an exhaustive coaching search. Um, but I do think Ali is the logical choice for these last 28 games, and I have no reason to suspect that the players wouldn't respond to him because they've responded to him in the past. And – not that, you know, Jock, not that he's catching the short end of the stick, but, you know, Ali, if he comes in and is replacing, he's coming in with a team that the trade deadline's passed. They know who's on the team. They are going to be the healthiest that they've been all season. And they also have the second easiest remaining strength of schedule for the rest of the year. So, you know, an opportunity to at least optically turn this thing around the rest of the year and, you know, have a good taste in the mouth going in, to the offseason. Another thing I thought was interesting that Shams Trania said on FanDuel TV was talking about, you know, he obviously I spoke already about Dinwiddie and Bridges and people having their grievances with the offense and how it was being run, but also said concerns within the Nets that Vaughn remaining as head coach would hurt their ability to lure stars in the offseason. And obviously that's going to be, you know, that's the direction they're going. I talked about you after in our trade deadline reaction pod of where they're going with this and what they want to do. I'm not, you know, Ali hasn't been in the NBA, doesn't have, you know, NBA experience per se. I don't know what his connections with players around the league are, but, you know, it seems like that is going to play a big factor in that potential exhaustive coaching search that they go on this summer, you know, if they do, as you would assume they do. Any early names or candidates that you could see, you know, being 
in the running. Like I've people say Budenholzer obviously is a logical guy. There's other people, you know, along those lines who could be in the mix, but it's obviously too early to say, but just early impressions. And what do you think they'll be looking for? Well, one, I would say, I, you know, I don't expect Kevin Ollie to be a magnet mm-hmm. for stars. Yeah, I don't expect too many coaches to be frankly yeah. to be a magic player, so player driven. Usually, I I would say a coach might deter a star. Yeah, <laughs> you know, if a star has no respect for somebody who just doesn't want to play for him, mm-hmm. I think that is much more likely than a star picking a destination because of a coach. Because let's be fair, you know, they can a star can have a little impact on who's coaching. <laughs> Right. We the, if you followed the Nets, you know that to be true. So, right. So you know you're going to pick the destination, and yeah, I'll get my guy in there, or get rid of a guy I don't like. Um. So yeah, but I mean, I listen. I think I don't know who's going to be the next coach. I don't even know that it won't be Kevin Ollie. Mm-hmm. Um. But I, I would say you know, Bud is a fantastic. Bud is a good coach. Bud is really good and. He's available. I don't see a valid reason why he would not be somebody that you call. You know, whether it's whether it's Bud or whether it's, you know, Kevin Ollie or whether it's, you know, a number of the quality assistants, you know, that are out there, you know, and there are a number, you know, Quinn, you know, Quinn is yeah. he's good. Chris Quinn is good. You know, there are there are, you know, Sam Cassell. I mean, there are a number of coaches. What about, that are a, out there. What about a Kenny Atkinson reunion? Is that something that you could see being in the cards? I, you know, I, I didn't even want to say it because I, you know, I don't, I don't want to cue up the Billy Martin jokes. But then again, <laughs> probably a, a, a huge percentage of your, of your podcast viewers probably, you know, weren't watching Billy Martin. That's more guys my generation. Yeah. Maybe some, you don't know. So, you know, but yeah, listen, as I said, I think Kenny did a fine job here. I really did. I think most Uh, people would agree universally that he did a good job. And I think he is one of the better, more attractive coaching candidates that's an assistant currently. Yeah. Um, One of the more on, you know, in-demand assistants in the league. I, I don't know his opinion on coming back here. Um, but they could do worse. They could do worse. And frankly, they have done worse. So, (laughs) yeah, we, we, we've, we've seen that for sure. Um, don't want to keep you too much longer. Everybody's busy today. Any parting thoughts? We're heading into second half of the season. It looks like the Nets have a new coach in Kevin Ollie pulled the trigger on a move. Many did not expect to come during the break. Healthy, as I said, second easiest strength strength of schedule. Anything you want to leave Nets fans with? No, I mean I think Nets fans probably, you know, they've probably been through enough. <laughs> they don't want to hear any more from me. They probably have been through enough heartache. Um, just, uh, you know, just suck down a little Pepto Bismol and understand it, you know. While it always can get worse, you know, just keep a positive attitude and hope that it'll get better. All right. Sounds good, Brian. I appreciate you taking the time, man. And I will see you back when you're back from the road trip. Oh, yeah. All right, man. Thanks for having me.
That does it for this episode of Believe in Nets on the Believe Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. Hope you guys enjoyed another interview with Brian. Please make sure to subscribe to Believe in Nets on all streaming platforms for free everywhere, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Smash the like button. Leave a five-star review if you can. That really means a lot. Nets are going to be coming out of the All-Star break. They're going to practice tomorrow. Then they are going to be kicking off a four-game road trip in Toronto on Thursday. I'll have more coverage of all that, news, updates, analysis. We'll get to talk to Kevin Ali, potentially Sean Marks. I'll bring all that coverage to you guys on ClutchPoints.com, on my Twitter, at Eric Slater underscore, and obviously here on the Believe in Nets podcast. Talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.